Hot Take is brought to you by Smile Actives. Are you self-conscious about your smile due to stains? Are your teeth aging you? Beverages like coffee and wine stain your teeth over time. So what can you do to brighten your smile? Well, you should give Smile Actives a try. Smile Actives is safe, effective, easy to use, and will keep you smiling proudly. Um, if you're anything like me, you probably drink, I don't know, maybe a whole pot of coffee every morning, and then maybe you go out in the afternoon and get an iced coffee. I don't know. I don't know your life. I just know mine. And yeah, that stuff starts to add up over time. Um, 97% of Smile Actives users in a clinical trial reported up to six shades wider on average, all within 30 days. Have you ever wished that you had a whiter and brighter smile, well, before you visit a dentist, you should know that their whitening treatments can be very expensive. And it's not just the price. You also have to book the appointment and schedule time away from work or family to sit in a dentist's office or chair while undergoing the procedure. It's a hassle. Fortunately, now you can try Smile Actives at home or anywhere, anytime. Smile Actives offer a safe and affordable alternative to those expensive whitening procedures. Simply add Smile Actives Pro Whitening Gel to your regular toothpaste, so no change to your routine, no extra time, yet people will start commenting on your whiter, brighter smile in just days. And even if they don't, so what? It's your smile. Get your own validation from within yourself. Smile Actives is the whitening boost your favorite toothpaste needs to give you the smile you deserve. Visit smileactives.com slash hot today to receive our special buy one, get one free offer, plus free shipping and handling. That's smileactives.com slash hot. Cricket is bringing our patented no-bullshit conversations to the airways for the very first time with Cricket Radio. Every weekend in the lead up to the midterms elections on Sirius XM Progress and on the Sirius XM app. It's a new way to listen to the same cricket content you love. Join our lineup of podcast hosts, candidates, experts, and more, including Hot Take, as we break down all the issues that matter this November, dive into the conversation shaping our current political climate, and get the only 100% correct opinions in politics. You don't want to miss this. Subscribe now and get up to four months of SiriusXM. See offer details at SiriusXM.com slash Crooked. Hey, hotcakes. Welcome to Hot Take. I'm Mariana Hegler. And I'm Sarah Snaith, an investigative journalist filling in for Amy Westerville. And we are so happy to have you. Uh, Sarah is both an investigative journalist and an alligator expert. She doesn't like to brag about that last part. Um, Unfortunately, Amy had to miss this week's recording and we will miss her. But we're always happy to have you here, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This week, we're going to be talking about a word you probably hear a lot of if you've been listening to Climate Conversations, frontline communities. That's right. And uh, just a refresher, frontline communities are those communities that suffer the worst impacts of climate change. These communities are more often black and brown communities. The term frontline communities can sometimes be used interchangeably with fence line communities, but those are actually different things. Fence line communities specifically refers to communities that are located near fossil fuel infrastructure, often literally across a fence. So while fence line communities are frontline communities, all frontline communities are not necessarily fence line communities. That's right. But even for folks who know what frontline communities are, by definition, we're not exactly good at talking about them. And the media still regularly ignores them or silences them until it's way, way too late. 
Right. Um, and that's why I'm glad we're going to be taking this deep dive with the hot take champion, Drew Costley. Perfect. Drew Costley is one of our all-time favorite people to talk to about so many things, which is why they're the first person to come on hot take not once, not twice, but now three times. I remember those episodes with Drew. They were so great. I can't wait to talk to them again. And actually, you're not that far behind, Drew, because now this is your second time on on a hot take. Um, Drew came on in 2020 to talk about the importance of local journalism, and then again in 2021 to talk about prison abolition. And we're really excited to talk to them again, so I think it's time. It's time to talk about climate. This holiday season, get a gift for yourself too, and keep it simple. I gave myself the gift of a better, more convenient laundry experience. I know, I know, laundry doesn't sound like a gift, but honestly, EarthBreeze just makes it so much easier. Think about how you actually do laundry. You have to work out how much detergent to pour, lift that big plastic jug, hope the goo doesn't get everywhere. It's annoying. But EarthBreeze Eco Sheets look like nothing I've ever seen in the detergent aisle. It's almost, it's like a dryer sheet kind of, but it's the detergent and you throw it in and then that's it. There's no measuring, no nothing. It works in hot and cold. It's also dermatologist tested, hypoallergenic, and free of bleach and dyes. And it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earth Breeze and save 40%, 40%. Go to earthbreeze.com slash drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot com slash drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled. Hi, Drew. How are you doing? How's life at the Associated Press? Oh, I'm doing well. You know, it's the, um, we've reached the end of, of disaster season, which I have dubbed the most, the most, uh, the busiest time of year. I feel like all these other beats sort of rest during the summer, you know, like education, business, slow down, entertainment even slows down, but when the environmental beat, that's when things pop off, but who knows, maybe things will keep popping off or maybe they'll be over. So, you know, things are good. Just relaxing. Drew, uh, I have a wooden table in front of me and I'm knocking on it because uh, to say a disaster season is over in this climate is kind of In crazy. this economy? In this political, <laughs> right? in this political economy? On this heating I globe? Mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in this atmosphere even. <laughs> um, so I hope you're right. I really do. Because could, we could use a break. Um, but one of the last times you and I talked, it was because you were in my home state reporting on the Jackson water crisis. So the thing I'm dying to know is, did you make it to my aunt's restaurant? I didn't. I'm sorry. You know, I had stopped wow. eating meat again, and I was like undecided of whether or not I was going to eat fish. But I didn't want to mm-hmm. eat fish until I had decided, you know, because like me- 
meat, st- meat is meat is so good. I didn't want it to sway my opinion on whether or not I should eat meat and what types of meat. And I so see. I didn't go. And it was and I was really busy. I'm sorry, boo. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I understand. And look, if you were, you know, on the fence and tempted by meat, that was not a great environment <laughs> for yeah, you to be. Yeah. So you probably made the best. Yeah. Probably made a better choice. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, personally, I was pescatarian until my neighbor down the street started cooking for us, and then I, I stopped. I started eating meat there. I mean, that I feel like that's oh. that's what's going to happen when you live in New Orleans, you know? Like, the food's too good. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've been vegan, and I live in New Orleans. That's and, true. Hey, that's I'm true. good. <laughs> I'm good. So, Drew, you were in Jackson at a particularly high-stakes moment, though, when the city had uh, no running water and reporters were flooding into the city from all over and residents were understandably on edge. I know I saw a lot of folks on Twitter talking about reporters coming to them in not-so-respectful ways. How was it for you navigating that and getting the story right? Yeah, so I should say, like, yeah, thanks for asking that. I think, like... um... I knew I went actually when I got there. It was I recognized that it was after the first round of 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 media coverage of what was going on in Jackson, right? And so um, I I knew that people would be wary and weary, um, and so I kind of wanted to take. I mean, I whenever I approach um, people who have gone through something that. I recognize as traumatic, if I'm being honest, right? Like losing water completely, like, and not being able to like do the things that are like normally the things you do in life with a very basic necessity to me qualifies as a trauma. Um, You know, I'm going to go and try to like talk to them with the understanding that maybe they don't want to talk. Right. And that I'm not entitled to their story, you know? Um, So that, you know, it was just like, that's how I kind of try to go into all like all of the stories that I write about in terms of environmental climate justice. Um, I feel like a lot of times we think as journalists, cause I'm saying, well, we as like you and I say, as people who work the beat and then like, Mary, you get to have some distance from this um, sort of this, this ethos of like, I'm doing the important work, right? Like I am doing something that's going to, hopefully result in a net benefit for society and for the people I cover. And so because of that, I really need your story in order to do that good. Right. And Mm -hmm. that might be the case. I don't know, but I think that what people can, I think people can sense when you feel that you are entitled to their story And that you're not really there to, like, try to connect with them on a human level, regardless of, like, what the end product is, you know? Um, And I try Mm -hmm. my best to not, like, go in with that attitude. So that's kind of how I was approaching it. Yeah. Yeah. So you don't just, like, grab a microphone and shove it in people's face and tell them, like, tell me your story or else? Well, you know, it's so funny that you say that because I did did start my career in environmental journalism doing just that. I was a sports reporter, as people who might have heard me on this this podcast before know, um, when I started out. But my first taste of environmental reporting came when I was on uh, an alternative spring break trip uh, at Howard Univers- with Howard University when I was an undergrad. And I worked for the school paper, and I, I thought I was, like, writing about 
I wasn't writing, I wasn't on the sports beat when I was in the school paper. And so I thought maybe it would be, it was a campus activity that we were going down there to do, to volunteer, right, with people's recovery and relief efforts. Um, and so I wanted to cover it and it seemed like an important story. Um, and I had that attitude, right, of like, I'm coming down to save everybody with the one story that's going to change everything, right? And um, mm. we were on the bus. We had just gotten pulled into, we were sort of taking, I think we were taking like a tour of New Orleans. Um, and some of like the volunteer work we were going to do was going to be based in the lower ninth ward. And so we pulled mm -hmm. up to the lower, like to like, I think it was like a, some busy street, like next to like right on the outside of where the lower ninth ward starts. And there was a guy who was, had like a protest, like a one person protest. And he had a sign and I don't remember what the sign says, uh, said it, I actually have a picture of this whole thing. Um, this whole, this mm -hmm. whole moment, it's just pretty embarrassing and, you know, affirming that I shouldn't act like this way ever again in my journalism career. Um, but, um, uh, we piled out of the bus and a few people walked up to him, just walked up to him, you know, and I don't know what their motives and things were. They weren't there as journalists, though, as sort of this dual role that I was there as. But I rushed up to him with my voice recorder in one hand and my um, in my pad, my reporter's notebook in the other. And I shoved my recorder in his face and I asked him some question about what it was like to live in the Lower Ninth Ward or live in New Orleans and post-Katrina New Orleans. And he completely ignored me, you know, which mm -hmm. he should have. Mm -hmm. I might have completely ignored him. Like, right. Like if I was in his situation, yeah. like I know I, I have like <laughs> me, Drew, like the real person. I am extremely shy around new people, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> people. You are. Yes. I'm so <laughs> like, if like, you know, like with you and you and I, Mary, like we had some exchanges online, right? Before, before yeah. we started, like, talking about stuff. But, like, if I had just, like, walked up, if we were in the same room and I had never met you before, I would be extremely shy, right? And so, like... Oh, wow. I, like... I wouldn't expect that. Yeah, well, a lot of people don't, but it's just, like, a very long story why yeah. I'm shy that I won't get into. But I, I, I okay. take... A, it only takes me a little bit of warming up to people, and then I, I'm a little more outgoing. But when I, it's new, new, new people that I've never met before, I'm very shy. And so I think about, like, hmm. well, what was this guy's experience of, like, some random, like, 20-something just running up in his face with all these other, like, little, like, little undergrad snots, like, surrounding him, like, asking him <laughs> questions about fucking this like immense trauma that he was like having a one minute, one person protest over, you know, like, and like, of yeah. course he ignored me. And I, I, I felt that, you know, I'm sensitive. I felt him ignore me and it was very informative mm -hmm. for sort of that whole experience, which was really like a very formative experience for me in terms of how I approach environmental justice reporting. Um, and and mm -hmm. even like inspired me to like you know that that was sort of the first time that I had gotten a taste of doing this type of work um so yeah it's always stuck with me that like I'm not entitled to anyone's story um mm -hmm. no one owes me their story like we like journalists have a you know we have the first amendment that allows us like freedom of press but it doesn't give us 
entitlement to someone's story in like most intimate details and like their like feelings, you know, like we kind of have to earn that um, through the way that we like approach people. So um, yeah, I did actually at one point in my career did shove a, a microphone in someone's face, but I try not to do that anymore. Oh, wow. So I, getting back to the Jackson water crisis, I, I want to take a moment to remind the audience that the Jackson water crisis is very much not over. Um, and even at the time, it wasn't new. Um, you might remember it burst onto the national scene back in 2021 with the winter freeze. Um, it's a chronic crisis, and it goes much further than Jackson. I've talked on this show before about how it affects the entire state, and the rural communities rarely get any type of attention, even though it's just as much a crisis there. Um, the water crisis across the whole state is chronic, but it only gets attention at acute flashpoints. Um, And that seems to be a problem for frontline communities across the board. Drew, how do you hold that tension as a national reporter? When you're going into a frontline community, how do you remain mindful of the chronic crisis while focusing on the acute crisis? And do you try to follow the stories after you leave? Yeah, I mean, I feel really fortunate that I work for an organization that has reporters in a lot of different places, right? So um, I, like with what's going on in Jackson, there are two awesome reporters, um, Emily Waxter Pettis and, um, and um, I can't remember the guy's last name right now, Michael... Um, Michael, whose last name I, who was a very gracious host, and I'm sorry, I can't remember your last name right now. They, they, they're the ones that cover Jackson on a day-to-day basis. You know, I was brought down there because there were some like racial angles that like, mm-hmm. I have, uh, you know, I'm informed uh, about how systemic racism, it results in environmental harm, you know, and mm-hmm. they wanted me to write that story. But if they like wanted me to write, like there are, there are some things that I heard when I was down there about research that citizens are going to do um, into tracking water at the tap and understanding that, yeah, it's a chronic issue. If there's other stories for me to write that like they can't handle, which is probably hard to, to make happen because they're great reporters. So I don't know if anyone's ever told you about a tickler file on this. On this, Have I ever said tickler file? Sarah knows what a tickler file is, probably. Can I guess what a tickler file sure, is? Sure, yes. I assume it's probably like a enemies list of people who are extremely ticklish. <laughs> um, like, you just want to, you're plotting how to sneak up on them at the most embarrassing moment and tickle them until they surrender yeah no it's that's no (laughs) i would be on that list by the way i'm very ticklish um but um how many are you with somebody's enemy though oh i'm probably a lot of people's enemy but that's okay um you know uh, yeah you're the one that's got hella enemies um anyways uh that's the sidebar (laughs) i'm a scorpio what does that mean i'm a scorpio i'm a I'm allowed to have enemies. How well, I'm a Leo, so I'm also allowed to have enemies, you know? Because, you know, I'm the star, baby. Anyways, <laughs> Y'all I'm just don't kidding. hold grudges. We don't hold, grudges, don't hold grudges, but we do like have this. haters. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so yeah. So a tickler file is like a file of your like story, of like stories and story ideas, right? So I have like a tickler file of stories that I've done, stories I want to do, stories that are like harebrained ideas, you know, that I come up with at like two in the morning and maybe need more development and research. And like, 
so I have a tickler file of like all the places that I've been or written about and I can like keep track of what's going on, like major developments. But I don't know, like I, I'm sort of an at-large reporter. Um, so I don't really get to like, I don't have the same function as a local reporter, right? Like I think my, where I'm at right now is there's a job of amplification. And I think what, you know, to talk about like what you were um, in, like in record, right? Like the associate Associated Press is like a news outlet of record, you know. So it's important that there's a record that there was like systemic harm that fell along racial and class lines that inv- resulted in like environmental inequity, right? Those are sort of my functions, right? Um, I think and. Um, less so sort of like the day-to-day coverage of like what a beat reporter would do. But to talk, to to get it like the other part of your question, I think about bringing, like understanding like the chronic issue and like bringing that out in the report is like, you know, you just, I don't try to conceive any of my stories as I'm the first person that learned about this, you know? Mm. Like I come from, I, I like really, I come from hip hop you know, and there's a famous Nas line, no idea is original, you know, there's nothing new under the mm-hmm. sun. And that's like a, that's a paraphrase of a quote of a famous quote itself. Right. And so like, mm-hmm. I, when I come down and I'm reporting, like I one have to do a bunch of background research to like, know what's happened before, what's been written about before. And like, don't necessarily need to give my sources a book report, but like can like let them know that I understand that there is a chronic issue and then like what how have you been experiencing this since before we got here is usually a question I ask. Yeah. You know, especially with things like with Jackson, like, you know, um, you know, it's just like with Flint, like that that there were people in the community for like a decade or more, like raising alarm bells. Um, and you just, I don't know, you don't act like, I I just, I just don't act like, like this is, this is sort of the event. I know that I'm getting sent down there because there's like acute attention in my editors and like management are like seeing that they want to put resources to this, but like me, myself, the person trying to connect with sources, like, you know, we have to have this understanding. Like I have to like communicate this understanding to them that like, this is not new. Um, yeah. 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 Sarah, I, I know you do reporting trips as well. Um, how do you think about these things as you try to make inroads with new communities? Yeah, I love what Drew's saying. I, I just want to, yeah, I, I love so many things that he's saying about first off, just like letting people off the hook, you know, to like, if they don't want to talk right now, if they feel like that's going to do them more harm, then I don't push the issue, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. just walk away. That's fine. You know, because some people do feel like talking helps them and they, and they feel that's cathartic, but other people don't. And like, you should let people be themselves in that moment. Um, and another thing I was just thinking about was like being curious, like not trying to assign your own context to what people tell you. So, uh, one, another thing that Drew just mentioned was about, um, doing your research, you know, before you go into a community. One thing I've come Mm -hmm. across though, is like when I do my research, the research, the quote unquote research often involves reading other news articles or like news clippings of that. So that's kind of like an interpretation of what the community has experienced. That's not exactly necessarily in the the same words as the community would 
would use, you know? So like, I think take those news articles sometimes with a grain of salt, like whose perspective is that really coming from? And maybe, maybe the community doesn't like the way that they've been portrayed in the past. So like be open to that. And sometimes even asking the question, what have people gotten wrong in the past is a good way to like let people help uh, set the narrative straight. And then, and then mm-hmm. I think the, another thing that I just wish I would have known a lot earlier is that it's okay to offer a hand if people need help. Like if someone's in the middle of doing mm-hmm. something and you're asking them, you know, questions, it's okay to just like jump in there and help them do that thing. That's a really good way mm-hmm. to like bond with people too, and show that you don't think of yourself in some regard that you can't get your hands dirty or like you can't, you know, be there helping and be a human first, you know? Yeah, I've actually kind of always wondered how journalists handle that. Like if you're reporting in the immediate wake of a, like, let's say a hurricane or a fire um, and somebody's like needing diapers or something like that, like, I I know there's a tension around paying your sources, um, but how do you not give in in a moment like that? I know Amy's talked about that before. But I wonder how y'all hold yeah, it. Yeah, it's difficult. I, I mean, it happened while I was down there. There were these guys who were like unloading a water truck, like and in Jackson. Yeah, and they were like, "Can you help?" And I was like, "I'm not really supposed to." <laughs> um, and you know, I mean, I ended up helping some, but it's difficult, mm-hmm. honestly. And I, 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 th- I'm, I'm grateful for what you're saying, Sarah, because I, you know, I think that we should be able to like actually be human and help our sources. Like, and I think there's a line, you know, I think there's some sort of common sense line between like paying sources, right? Like favor for like access and like, just like being a human, you know? Um, Absolutely. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know. I, 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 it's, it's, it's definitely like, I'll probably stop talking after I say this because it's like, you know, my, my outlet isn't necessarily like, they have like very old sort of, sort of like, um, traditional ideas about, about that sort of intersection. Um, and I don't know, maybe they need to be revisited. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Drew, guess what? What? (laughs) Chicken butt. (laughs) No. Nobody laughed at that? That was funny. <laughs> I am so disappointed in, in yourself. Wow. <laughs> okay, first the fucking off. Oh, damn, came on camera. Came on camera. Hey, what's are up? We, are we fighting? Are we fighting? No, I just was playing. A neck. Damn, <laughs> your, ch- your chicken neck. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Drew, where do sheep go on vacation? Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad we're doing jokes. Um, <laughs> I did a joke a minute ago. Uh, oh, that was a, it. It was that was a joke. <laughs> yeah, that was over your head. Right. That was okay. that was over my head. <laughs> where do sheep go on vacation? <laughs> Um, uh, Shirhamas. I don't know. Um, <laughs> the shore, the shore, the shore. 
<laughs> oh my gosh, you were so close. They go to the Bahamas. Whoa, I was really close. <laughs> Fuck. I fe- Wait. I feel like you get honorary air horn. Going to ants. Hot Take is brought to you by Lomi. If you've ever tried composting at home, you might know that it's a little bit of an art. Um, I once failed really badly at composting, and long story short, I, I wound up having to empty my composting bin full of worms underneath a bridge in the winter. Um, yeah. It got dark. Um, but then I got a Lomi. <laughs> Lomi allows me to turn my food scraps into dirt with the push of a button. Lomi is a countertop electric composter that turns scraps into dirt in under four hours. I know that sounds not very believable, but trust me, it happens. And there's no smell when it runs, and it's really quiet. I'm saying this from experience. And I got my Lomi at the actual perfect time because I've gotten really into plants lately. So couldn't have been better. Um, thanks to Lomi, I have way less garbage each week. Since I got my Lomi, I throw out way less garbage. That means it's not going to landfills and producing methane. Instead, I turn my waste into nutrient-rich dirt that I can use to feed my plants. Lomi is super easy to use. It has like three settings and you just, I just picked the simplest one because that's, that's the one it came set to and it's great. Um, If you want to start making a positive environmental impact or just make cleanup after dinner that much easier, Lomi is perfect for you. Head to Lomi.com slash hot to use the promo code hot to get $50 off your Lomi. That's $50 off when you head to Lomi.com slash hot and use promo code hot at checkout. Food waste is gross. Lomi is your solution. You'll want to move quickly as they're over 80% sold out for October. That's Lomi, L-O-M-I dot com slash hot. Hot Take is brought to you by Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth sheets are made from premium 100% viscose from bamboo, which means they're super soft, lightweight, and temperature regulating so you'll sleep more comfortably year-round. I love my Cozy Earth sheets. Um, They feel like sleeping on butter, uh, which (laughs) I know that might sound weird, but just Trust me, it feels really good. Um, and you fall asleep. I fall asleep so much faster when I'm sleeping on them. Um, Cozy Earth products are so amazing. They have been featured in Oprah's Favorite Things four years in a row. They also offer a 100-night sleep guarantee, which means you have up to 100 nights to sleep on it. Wash it. Try it out. If you're not completely in love, just send it back for a full refund. And Cozy Earth offers a 10-year warranty. When is the last time you heard that kind of warranty for sheets. Cozy Earth's bedding, towels, and clothing are all warranted against pilling, discoloration, and shredding. You can rest assured any defects are covered and replaced immediately. Plus, they're made out of bamboo, so pretty sustainable stuff here. Whether it's their best-selling luxury sheets, ultra-comfortable loungewear collection, or new bath collection, you'll absolutely love shopping at Cozy Earth. Our audience can save 35% on Cozy Earth. Get cozy now. Go to CozyEarth.com hot and save 35%. All backed by a 100-night sleep guarantee. That's CozyEarth.com H-O-T. Exciting news. Pod Save America dropped a bonus episode last week featuring an interview with former President Barack Obama, and they discussed everything from the importance of the upcoming midterms to what's going on in Iran. We promise you don't want to miss this. 
Listen to the conversation in the Pod Save America feed wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, one thing we've been hearing a lot about in recent years, and not a moment too soon, is trauma-informed reporting. Mm. And um, and I know personally, I don't think I've ever had any formal training for this. Um, <laughs> I literally remember a moment uh, at my first newspaper job when I was uh, interviewing a victim of a violent crime, and I was literally like Googling on Pointer how to talk to a person who's the victim of a violent crime as I was talking to this person. Mm. Um, so, Drew, I'm wondering if you've wow. gotten any training in this area Dang. and have any tips. The short answer is no, right? Like, I haven't gotten any, like, like if it, there was a certification, right? Like, taking a trauma-informed reporting class. I've never done that. Um I'm a survivor of trauma. Um, mm-hmm. I have chronic and complex PTSD. Um, and I come from people that has that have experienced lots of trauma in multiple ways, right? Like I'm black, I'm queer, I'm, I'm disabled. Um, and I grew up with some level of poverty. And I think that that, just like how like those things can inform my report in some ways, in terms of identity, I guess also they can inform my report in terms of identity as being like a trauma survivor and understanding that like understanding, like having contact with people who have gone through trauma. Yeah, it's it's a very important designation to be trauma informed, I think, right? Um, and one that shouldn't be taken lightly. So I won't I won't say that I've gotten any training in doing it, but I have a lot of experiences thinking about it and talking about it with people in an, some some inside the industry and some outside just people who I know um, in some of the communities mm-hmm. that I'm in. And um, I think that it's something that like we should all have, period, journalists or not. Like we are all like, if you just take the most recent, like the most recent example that is very overarching, which is COVID, right? A lot of the conversation in that was that that people had about that experience was that it was a shared trauma, right? It's collective trauma, and I think like we can all benefit from some level of training on how to like approach each other. Period regardless of whether or not we're trying to get a quote, you know, when it comes to like being trauma informed. So I would love if there was actually some training to take. I'd sign up for that shit yesterday. And I think it's incredibly important that, that we have, we have that understanding that people have experienced some really heavy shit Mm -hmm. and that we want to be careful not to re-traumatize people to like, like, I just, I think it's such a gift when people like share with me, period right and they're vulnerable i just try to and that's period that's how inside and outside of my work and i try to take that with me into my work but yeah i would love to um like be trained by some fucking psychologists right some therapists on like <laughs> how to talk to mm-hmm. people who've like you know experienced trauma i'd love to do that yeah one thing i wonder about is in, in terms of trauma informed reporting so like there's the way that you approach you know, your hopeful sources, but also there's the trauma you take with you after those conversations and after those stories. And to go from like, especially for climate reporters, I could imagine mm-hmm. going from like 
disaster to disaster to disaster, that's a lot to hold for you as a person, even if you weren't the person who experienced the hurricane. And I know for you, Sarah, based in New Orleans, like you have experienced the hurricane yourself. Drew, when you're based in the Bay, like you were breathing that air just like everybody else during fire season. So like, how how do you hold that as journalists? Can Sarah answer that question first? Because no, because you, because I live in an area that is not as disaster prone right now. And I'm really curious how you, as somebody who lives, who's like more so in the trenches than I am, how you, how you do that, like how you handle that. Well, yeah, I guess one thing I I was talking to someone about this the other day. One thing I, I think I took away from Hurricane Ida specifically was just how the things that are reported as like, you know, as we're reporting, we're always looking for, you know, it's a, there's a tendency to look for the worst example, you know, a death, somebody who are, is seriously injured, you know, something like that. You're, you're looking for something that's outwardly shows the impacts of, of these events um, in a way that really captures the worst of it. But I, I think what's missing, though, and what I, what I experienced was just also how it can impact you and seemingly small ways, but like really get under your skin, you know, like the way, like you can't during hurricane Ida, like I I came back to the, I I evacuated to Mississippi. Um, and then I came back and on my way back, I was trying to get gas and, uh, the prices of the gas were so high. You couldn't even get them. And some of the lines were like hours and hours long. And it was just impossible to like get, you know, back to the city. Then I got back into the city and like my water had been, a tree fell down in my front yard. And so my water line had been pulled out and I had no water. Um, and then I was like, I felt just like a disappointment, you know, because I thought like, I want to be telling my community's story and I want to do it well, but I can't even do it very well because I don't even have electricity. I don't have, um, the best internet, like every, like I'm not getting out the stories fast enough. Um, and it just, it feels like though those things just weigh on you, you know, in a way that is long-term too, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't just go away when the storm happens, uh, or when the storm's yeah. over either, like it, it sticks with you and it, um, you know, they, they say that people who are the children of like people who've experienced violence, that they themselves like take that violence with them. Like it, it's in their, like DNA basically. And I feel like the same thing could probably be say a set of like people who experience multiple hurricanes. Like, I just think it, it must stick with you, you know, cause it's stuck. Mm-hmm. The one when I went back, went through, that was really bad. It really stuck with me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. Yeah. I mean, I feel that. Yeah. I don't know. I, <laughs> I'm thinking now about personal experience and like, it's like, I, did I benefit? Did, is this a way in which I benefited from growing up in a dysfunctional household, right? Like, mm-hmm. where, like, I have some level of, like, training and rhythm around, like, is it going to be, is it, is it, is the shit going to hit the fan today? Or is it going to hit hit the fan next week, mm-hmm. right? But it's definitely going to hit the fan. Um, I, I just, like, do the same things that, I don't know, man. <laughs> I, I got a therapist, you know, um, I'm, I <laughs> yeah. pray, I pray, I meditate, I drink water. Mm-hmm. I try to feed myself as well as possible. And it's so, I, I vibe with Sarah when it's like, 
I had that experience a couple times uh, when I was living in the Bay and I was writing about wildfires while experiencing like having to like be in the house, like has to, having to shelter in place because I lived in the Bay between 2017 and 20, like 2020, like late 2020, basically. And like, um, yeah. it happened several times, right? While I was living there mm-hmm. where it was like so much smoke outside that the local authorities were selling us this shelter in place. And like, I was still like reporting, you know? Um, And yeah, that, that feeling of like being sort of part of the community that's being impacted by whatever it is that you're trying to report on, it just makes it incredibly difficult. And then during COVID, you know, like I was like writing about research, you know, uh, like all this COVID research and like, um, when I worked at one zero and like, also like was afraid of getting the virus, you know, like on a daily basis and like, um, had all of these things like, um, and afraid of my family members getting the virus, um, and like had all these things impacted, right? Like where I used to say we could get like 60% of what we wanted out of a day, you know, like we go to the grocery store, we want to get all our groceries. We come back with, you know, some food that we don't want some um some toilet paper that we don't we don't have toilet paper shit like that i mean mm-hmm. i don't know it's hard um and the tools remain the same right like um to 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 try to cope and to try to still like heal and recover and recuperate and grow um mm-hmm. that's and that's what I do. I just try to take care of myself as 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 well as possible. I mean, you know, I've had it I've had, you know, I've had I've had situations in my career where like I didn't take care of my mental health um and my wellness um for long enough that it broke me and I couldn't do the work anymore, you know? Um mm-hmm. and uh and I recognized sort of when I was coming out of the most recent time of that that like I have to be able to take care of myself so that I can help help other people. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's real. <clears throat> Absolutely. I think I think when I've done my best at this, um, what I've been able to do is is uh, is to show joy that people have in, in impacted communities um, and vulnerable communities, and I think that's important because it shows how communities have all the ingredients to, to thrive when they're given the opportunity. Um, and I wanted to ask you too, how do you think reporters can better show the joy that's possible in frontline communities? Yeah, sh- by showing it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying, Sarah? I know you yeah. can like, you can relate. Like, like you know, you like, you, it's like when I was in Jackson, like I was like, there was a water line and like, I didn't, it didn't get into my story, honestly. Um, and I wish it had, right? I wish we had more space to tell the stories that we do. Um, but people were like joking and hugging each other and telling jokes mm-hmm. and like taking care of each other and smiling, you know? Those are things that we should be depicting, you know, if we want to have like a holistic report. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe there are these times where like, we want to say all we want to say is that people were suffering, but it shouldn't be the the whole picture. You know, it shouldn't be the whole picture that people are just suffering because they aren't. I know from like covering these stories enough and I'm sure you do too, Sarah, especially being in a place down like in new Orleans, 
you know, where people have to hold the realities of like great tragedy and great like hope and triumph and love, like at the same time, like, I mean, I feel like I come from those people, you know, in, and I was, I was, I always record it at the very least, like in my notes, you know, or like I ask questions about it. Um, and unfortunately it doesn't always get into the report. Um, and you know, that, that goes to putting it in the story, fighting editors to keep it in the story. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's how. Yeah. I, I love this question, Sarah. I was, I don't know if y'all got to see, um, last week tonight, um, but it was focused on transgender rights. And one of the things that ended the report was the importance to talk about the joy of the transgender experience and how it's not always just suffering and sadness and right. And like, it's, it's problematic to allow that to dominate the, the story, but that also requires us to make room for complicated stories mm. Um, And it also will require us to not just talk about vulnerable communities, frontline communities, you know, communities in in danger when they are at their most acute uh, moments. That's going to require us to to stick with these communities. And also, you know, I think showing the joy can probably start to tempt the line with resilience narratives, uh, which we all know is a problematic word. So if it's like, you know, you're showing folks after a hurricane celebrating, you know, celebrating life, you also still have to be able to talk about the horrible thing that they've just had to deal with and the long road ahead of them while also talking about their joy. Because if you end it on the joy while they're still at the acute crisis, I feel like that can send the signal that these folks don't need help. They're good. They got it. Right. So that's complicated. And I don't think we do very well with telling complicated stories or reading complicated stories as a society. Um, So, yeah, I I think we need to do it. Um, I think that there's ways to talk about joy that could become irresponsible, though. So I don't know. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah, I would say that, like, I know that I've done it right when someone leaves the story pissed off instead of sad. When someone reads a story of mine and they say, oh, that was so sad, I'm like, I did something wrong. You know, mm. that's not what you should be mm. feeling. Like, you should be feeling mad if you feel anything. But because, like, mad is an emotion that you can do something with. But I think sad yeah. makes you feel like you can't do anything about it, you know? Mm. hmm Damn. Yeah. Yeah, that's real. Um. So I I know I've told Drew this. I may have told you this story as well, Sarah. But back when I was trying to be a reporter, (laughs) um, my short-lived little stint, um, I did a story about how Hugo Chavez was giving people free oil to heat their homes in the winter in the Bronx. Um, And I met this older woman who told me about how the free oil had you know, benefited her, cut her costs and all of that. Um, and I was trying so hard to be respectful with my questions to her. And I was completely just taken aback when the photographer who came with me just outright asked her about her breathing machine. Because I was wondering, but I felt like it was so rude to ask mm. her. And she answered. She answered mm-hmm. and was not taken aback by that question at all. And like, I was like, my mind was blown. I didn't know you could do that. So how do y'all go about asking sensitive questions respectfully? Mm. Like, how do you decide when it's too invasive and when it's not? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's like, there's a lot of sort of context clues sort of thing. I think like I, it's a case by case basis for me. If there, if it's, if it's germane to the story, then I want to try to find a way to ask the question. 
right? If it's less germane and it's more about detail, then maybe it's something that, like, I only ask if the vibe is right. It's, it's, it's a very unscientific <laughs> way of putting it, but that's how I, that's how mm-hmm. I carry it. And then, like, um, sometimes, like, it's, and it depends. It's, like, different for different people. I just, like, uh, had a couple stories come out about disability and climate change. and Oh, yeah, we're going to talk about oh, those. Oh, okay, well, well, yeah, well I'll ahead. just hint a little bit. I just ask people about their disabilities because I'm around a lot of people with disabilities just in my, like, life, like, otherwise. And, like, also, like, personally having had a physical disability growing up. And, like, when people find out about some of my unseen mm. disabilities, too. I don't want people mm-hmm. to, like, be, like, so, like, when I when I'm asked about it in a way that's like gingerly or like overly sympathetic, it kind of makes me feel like I'm without agency, right? Like I'm like, um, so I would want somebody to just ask, right? And maybe like a non-judgmental tone, but just ask. Um, and so a lot of times I'll just ask people, you know, or I'll say if it's like, you know, um, like if it's something that is more universally being experienced like a cri- like an acute crisis like the water crisis or like uh aftermath of a hurricane you could just lead up to it and be like hey i might have to ask about some things before you even c- turn the recorder on like hey will you be comfortable talking about this stuff no mm-hmm. okay what about that stuff okay you know mm-hmm. sort of informed consent yeah being yeah yes like being transparent about what you're that what you're there to do and what like how it might fit into the story um and um yeah and like letting people know what they especially if they volunteer something that you think might have repercussions for them like i don't think there's any harm in like letting them know like or ch- just confirming or temp checking that they're okay with like that being that being used. Um, so I don't know, like being sensitive, um, trying yeah. to be and un- not being entitled. Um, yeah. Being curious. Like I think Sarah said earlier, like, you know, not letting that curiosity die out because like you have something in the back of your head that like tells you that this person might not want to share. Um, mm-hmm. And just sort of trying to hold all those things at, at the same time. Yeah. I don't know, Sarah, do you have any, any thoughts on that? No, I mean, I think, I think you covered it well. I, I think it's best, like uh, they were saying, that just uh, that you just like ask yourself why you're asking this. Why do you need to know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think that will help you decide whether or not it's a good question to ask. Yeah, I mean, it was it's funny because in in the case of the story I was just talking about with the breathing machine, I didn't think it was that relevant. But then once I heard, you know, why she had the breathing machine, it was because the air was so polluted in the South Bronx that she developed asthma and how that related to, you know, her bills and all of those sorts of things. It was like, oh, this actually really does connect. And I was going to be too shy to ask. So anyway, uh, Drew, where do sharks go on vacation? (laughs) Uh, Oh, oh, I got a good one. Uh, Martha's Vineyard. What? Because that's where Jaws was shot. Oh. <laughs> that's not a pun, though. Yeah, that's true. It just went over y'all's you're heads. Like, you're just, like, thinking of nice vacation spots for, jo- for, for sharks. For sharks, yeah, man. <laughs> the sharks, man. What if the sharks, like, want to get some vineyard vines, you know? I mean, I could work with that if it had been Martha's Vineyard. Ooh, you know? Oh, that would have been good. But... 
No, the correct answer is Finland. Nice. They'll die in Finland, but maybe not because of fucking climate change. Wait, why? Is it too cold in Finland? Yeah, Finland's cold, right? I don't know. I probably shouldn't just be like a science reporter just like all talking willy-nilly about temperatures. And <laughs> Finland's like north and oh, it's and- like probably cold and I doubt that sharks can. Anyways, all right. <laughs> Never mind. There's probably like cold weather sharks or some shit. Are there cold weather alligators, Sarah? Sarah's a she's she's kind of low key about it, but she is. Well, I'm not an. <laughs> but you can't like a science journalist isn't going to be like, yeah, I'm an when they don't have a PhD in alligators, unless you yeah. do, Sarah. <laughs> I wrote one story about alligators, and Mary keeps calling me an. <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> You've also like swam with them. That doesn't okay. make you a bro. I live. Yeah, that's true. I you live. Need to be- to get in the water with some fucking alligators as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> That's not some amateur shit. Uh, I know enough of, I feel like I know enough about them to know not to be too scared of them. But I'll say alligators hibernate. So um, I think that answers your question though. They hibernate during, I think when it's cold. Mm. Um, so Drew, last time you were on the show, we talked about how prison populations are actually frontline communities that often get overlooked. Mm. Um, and you recently did this series this week on a group that's also often overlooked, and that would be the disabled community, mm-hmm. which we've already alluded, alluded to, and how they're often left out of disaster planning. You found out some pretty grim disparities between the countries that signed the Paris Agreement and the countries that signed the Convention of Rights for People with Disabilities. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I don't know the actual numbers because I've been covering a lot of different stories right now but well i can help you yeah please help me with the numbers um so only 32 of the 192 countries that signed the uh convention on climate change the paris accords in 2015 uh, only 32 of them referred to people with disabilities in their official climate plans yeah uh 45 countries refer to disabled people in their climate adaptation policies, and no country mentions disabled people in its climate mitigation plans. Um, And a lot of the world's biggest contributors to climate change don't figure people with disabilities into any of those plans at all. That includes the U.S., China, Russia, Brazil, Germany, Japan, and the U.K. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Thank you for running that down. Yeah. So it's like, I was pretty shocked by that, actually. Um, yeah. Because, I don't know, like, uh, mindfulness and planning around people with disabilities seems to be kind of a thing that, like, you would expect of a more technologically advanced or economically advanced country. Um, mm-hmm. And that's not the case. Like, some of the poorest, and maybe, maybe that, maybe if we're, if we're talking climate, you know, maybe we put our climate hat on when we're thinking about this, you know, some of the poorest countries in front and the ones that have already experienced, you know, the worst of climate change so far um, are the ones that are the that are the first to come up with ideas around climate solutions, you know, and are willing to like sign on to some of the more drastic policy measures, you know, and policy commitments. So maybe, maybe I shouldn't have been so shocked. But Yeah, I mean, and the other thing is that a lot of these countries, minus the U.S., 
have signed on to the UN Convention of, P- of Persons with Disabilities, which is actually like right. pretty universally adopted at this point. Um, but the U.S. hasn't adopted that. And I think it says something about the country's mindfulness about people with disabilities. You know, um, we have the mm-hmm. we have the ADA, but there's all sorts of problems with enforcement around the ADA. And then also that like a lot of times people to bring like, I think this might be, I might be speaking out of league, but I think like it's the burden of proof is on the people with disabilities to prove that they like need a thing. Mm-hmm. If it's not certain, if it's not like explicitly like um, in the pol- in policy, in, in federal policy. Um, yeah. I mean, there's all this, there's, there's all these ways that we just don't care about and think about, people with disabilities yeah generally speaking and so obviously i guess it gets into the climate planning yeah and for clarity's sake ada is americans disabilities act Mm -hmm. yeah i really liked these uh stories you did drew i thought they were so impactful um and in 2021, my best friend who I co-own my house with, um, she was hit by a car while riding her bike and um she was in a wheelchair for three months and I really gave me a glimpse of what trying to navigate New Orleans is like in a wheelchair. We we mm-hmm. have an elevated house and most houses, you know, are elevated and we had to have a ramp built for our house and we took like doors off of our um some of our rooms because they they didn't allow for her wheelchair to go through. And uh mm-hmm. and most of the and the one of the things I never noticed prior to that um, and I'm ashamed to say, but I, I never noticed that all of the bathrooms at like a, most of the bathrooms at establishments in New Orleans are elevated because the plumbing like has to be elevated to not flood. So mm-hmm. like every time you go to a restaurant or something, you have to like go up three stairs to go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And that also makes it just so hard for, for folks. And that's that's before you even get to, you know, dealing with um, a hurricane or something or an evacuation. So, yeah, it's very important issues, very important issues. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think like, yeah, this it's the one of the, the one thing that I learned from the sources I spoke to so far for this series is um, that yes, that their lives are really hard before a disaster strikes um, or before um the run up to a disaster, you know, or the aftermath of one, because society doesn't plan for them, you know, mm-hmm. um, in so many different ways. Or, and that's not to say that, like, like what you're describing, right, is like, is there's it's a a, a well reasoned thing, like, right, like the bathrooms have to be at a certain elevation. It's just like so probably there would be need to be some additional planning that goes into having both of those things be true that the bathrooms can be elevated and it can be accessible you know um what what i'm learning what i've learned from like a lot of the sources that i spoke to for the for this story for the stories that i i hope to keep publishing on this is um is that society just isn't doesn't really care about them period but this is definitely a population that that sort of needs to be planned for Totally. And it'll be interesting to see. I, I mean, I know like at the UN, there's like, you know, um, we'll see what the, if the UN is completely accessible this year. The, I'm sorry, COP, um, the UN uh, Climate Change Convention is completely accessible this year. Um, it wasn't last year. Um, and mm-hmm. we'll see what kind of um, 
what kind of audience the disabled community get and, and what type of inclusion they get in terms of being part of the policy discussions there. Um, yeah. 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 Your story mentioned um, at the last COP, there was, you know, someone using a wheelchair who basically wasn't able to access the the convention, right? And that was just last in Scotland? Yeah, yeah, in Glasgow, yeah. So, yeah, Kareen Al-Harar, um, Israel's energy minister, like, uses a wheelchair. And they, basically, it was that, like, they didn't have, they didn't want to give her pe- her and her people access to the entrance that she could use because she had a wheelchair. There wasn't, there was, there was an entrance, but they wouldn't let her get to it um because mm-hmm. she wasn't cleared or something and there wasn't the in the one that they wanted her to use wasn't accessible so um and this is this is how it goes i mean i have a recording of it i don't know that i'll report on it because i was actually involved in in what happened but i was at like a sort of just like a public hearing for like federal ej policy and it was on zoom and during the there was a break and during the break there were some people who were typing things into the chat on Zoom. And there was like a moderator or something, somebody who was like helping out with like whatever agency the 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 uh the meeting was for, that everyone has to say everything that they want to communicate. Like they have to speak it. They can't type it into the chat because it needs to be recordable into into the public record. And I was just starting to work on these stories when that happened. And I was like, well, what about people who are mute, who like literally can't speak? Like they just literally can't participate, right? Mm. Um, And I mean, they could, you know, they have um, like closed captioning for people who who are deaf, but what about people who just can't speak, um, who might want to participate? So... Yeah, I mean, there's various and sundry Sarah write disability climate stories. Everybody who's in the field write disability and climate stories. Mary write disability and climate essays. Um, it's a super <laughs> important story. Everybody, please help. <laughs> please help. <laughs> no, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And we've been focusing, or we've been talking about disabilities, uh, physical disabilities, but your story mentions uh, people with cognitive disabilities too, mm-hmm. and um, and how they're neglected in emergency plan- planning. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I, I think I, it's not just, and one thing that didn't make it into the story that I'd love to talk about too is is that people with like neurodivergence often they have trouble like being involved in like protests is what like some people were talking to me about and like demonstrations um because there's just not like this mindfulness of people who have maybe sensory issues or things like that but yeah the the part that was in the story was um was just about how like communications about climate change are not mindful of people with like reading disabilities it's like a very simple way to like to to like think about it like there's like an easy mm-hmm. read format which like 
when I was writing the sentences that of, of this paragraph talking about easy read format, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not even writing an easy read format. Uh, communications yeah. about climate change are not accessible to people who have like either attention deficit or a combination of attention deficit and dyslexia. Um, that's like another way that like we are leaving out a lot of people who like could be part of the solution and who want to be part of the solution. And like at the very minimum, they want to be part of the yeah. future, you know, <laughs> like they want to survive and thrive. Um, yeah. And you yeah, know, they they have less of a say in it. You know, I think um, if you really look at it uh, because they mm-hmm. the, the solution isn't accessible to them. Yeah, that was actually one of the things we thought about as we were starting this podcast, Amy and I, about, you know, not everybody Mm -hmm. learns by reading dense articles. Not everybody, uh, you know, processes information that way the best. Um, Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I'm a better listener than I am reader. And so I think that there's a tendency in the climate community or in the climate conversation to, like, prioritize that specific kind of intelligence where you're somebody who reads really fast or somebody who processes numbers really fast. Um, And that's not everybody. And we need everybody. (laughs) So why would we do that? Um. So an- another thing I wanted to talk about is like, it- it's kind of wild how after every major disaster, you kind of only have to wait for the dust to clear a little bit for there to be news about some nursing home scandal, um, which kind of gets back to what we were talking about before, about frontline communities being neglected mm. until they're in an acute crisis. Um, how do you think the journalism community could better serve and include the disabled community on a sustainable long-term basis um giving them (laughs) giving like hiring them not Mm. just to and not just to report on disability putting them in positions of power in journalism um uh in news outlets and in journalism organizations um by seeing them um making it part of the regular report it's an incomplete report if it's not concerned with people who are elderly in the community if it's not concerned with the disabled people just like how I mean this you know this is the way that it came up for me was uh I was like well when we talk about environmental and climate justice a lot of times we talk about class and race in America at the very least um and and but what about other communities that are historically marginalized, right? And so the same thing applies here that applies for inclusion of uh, BIPOC voices, of um, queer voices, um, and trans voices. Um, and it, it just has to become part of your everyday existence and mindfulness of it. Like we can't live our lives with these like blinders, which pun fucking might maybe not not intended and even my language needs to change um uh we yeah with these like with this like sort of like individualistic mindset where we're not in community with a broad array of people you know um yeah we often you know our society is very atomized and we don't live in community with people or we like are very like narrow about who we're in community with and we can't and journalists you know if you want to be a record keeper if you want to be a storyteller um you gotta you gotta realize that it's like 
you're telling like humanity story you know you're not just telling like suburb sub the suburb story you're not just telling affluent people story or white people story right or straight cishet people story or able-bodied people story um and that's how you get it into the report you know is by it's gotta it's gotta leave the it's gotta leave the newsroom with you so that it can come back with you when you come back and it needs to be in every it needs to be in all all parts of our lives you know um, that's how, in my opinion. Snapping. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. I agree. <laughs> but I do just have one more question. Drew, how do you know if an elephant loves to travel? The size of its trunk. <gasps> Give it to me. It was close enough. Okay. Do I get an air horn? Really? Actually, that's, yeah, I would say that's pretty much it. Yeah, it's because oh. they always pack their own trunk. Because they pack their own trunk. Damn. I, I, no, I think you got it. I think that counts as a victory. No, I don't want that. Yeah, I don't want that one. <laughs> you don't want that one? I don't want a wall of victory. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I wish I, I had picked more victory. puns. We just, we just stopped talking about living in community. I want an absolute victory now. No, Thank you very much. This is this is the most Leo reaction to getting a pun slightly wrong. I'm a double Leo. I'm a double Leo. Really? I'm a Leo sun and rising. Mm. Can you guess what sign Sarah is? Mm. I'm not good at that. Just tell me. I'm not good at that. Well, one thing you know about Sarah from this interaction is that she stays out there. Um, she's, a, she's a Pisces. Mm. Right? Like, just keep swimming. Okay. Okay. I'm, like, just now learning, like, astrology stuff. Yeah. 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 And also, Pisces and alligators get along. Oh, jeez. Well. <laughs> that makes you, I think being a Pisces makes you an Oh, Every Pisces so. in the world is an. That's it. That's it. That's new new study. I'm gonna piss off my editors as much as possible. <laughs> I mean, honestly, Sarah, you are the only person I know who has ever said the word alligator gar. Yeah, alligator gar. Alligator oh, what? A fish. Are you talking about the fish, oh. Mary? I I don't know. It looked like an alligator to me. No, there's a fish. It's called an alligator gar. They're really huge and they have lots of teeth cute they look like alligators yeah, it's hot <laughs> so i guess you haven't eaten alligators since you've lived down there right mary we've talked i think we talked about this no i'm vegan right i'm not gonna eat an alligator but have you ever had alligator uh probably right uh but i don't recall it yeah Dude. I've had alligator. I've also helped a baby alligator out of its egg before. <laughs> oh. So you're an alligator midwife? Yes. yes. That is your alligator doula <laughs> midwife. Come through. Oh my God. Birth work. I need work. the story. I need the story. I think we have a couple more minutes. So, uh, story. Well, okay, so I went to this alligator farm when I was in Texas, and um, 
they told me while we were at the, well, okay, first the story just caught like completely off the rails as it would at an alligator farm. One of the things that happened while we were there was a local rancher called the alligator farmer and said that a couple of his cattle had just been electrocuted by um, some lightning. And he was like, if you come over here and pick up the cattle, you can feed them to your alligator. And so I was like, I need to stick around for that. Um, I'm coming right back uh, after lunch and I'm going to like watch these cattle get fed to alligators. And they were like, Ooh. yeah, sure, you should do that. And also, you know what else? If, you really, if you're like really into all of it, you could come back when we're hatching our alligators and you can help us hatch the alligators. And I was like, yep, I am coming back for that as well. <laughs> so yeah, I came back several months later and I, um, I helped them hatch the alligators. The baby alligators, they make these little like vocalizations when they're ready to hatch and at the alligator farms they like help them because that's what the mother alligators typically do is they help them like tear their little leather sacks open wow what's the sound can you right? make the sound it's like mm, 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 mm. <laughs> hey that wasn't too bad right <laughs> and then if you call her an <laughs> she gets mad uh, but yeah, ain't no regular Damn. ass people just out here pulling alligators out of eggs, Sarah. Like that's I not... won't just you alligator doula. I do like that actually. I'll I'll claim that one. Oh, I'll put wow. that on my Twitter profile. Cute. Gator doula. <laughs> I aspire. Honestly, reptiles are tight. Honestly, that's amazing. Um, this is a great place to leave it. So thank you so much, Drew, for, for coming on the show, the third time champion of Hot Take. Am I the, th- is it, am I the first third timer or no? Y- you are. You are the first third timer. Nice. So. <laughs> um, Sarah's going to catch up to you because this is Sarah's second time. And thank you so much, Sarah, for filling in at the last thank minute. Thank you. This was so it. fun. Hot Take is a Crooked Media production. It's produced by Ray Pang and mixed and edited by Jordan Cantor. Our music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Leo Duran is our senior producer. And our executive producers are Mary Annalise Hegler, Michael Martinez, and me, Amy Westervelt. Special thanks to Sandy Gerard, Ari Schwartz, Kyle Seglin, and Charlotte Landes for production support, and to Amelia Montooth for digital support. You can follow the show on Twitter at Real Hot Take, sign up for our newsletter at hottakepod.com, and subscribe to Crooked Media's video channel at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. Media.